Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the United States and asking one of the fundamental political questions. Has this crisis revealed new divisions in American politics, or is there a new unity? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me slash talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me slash talk. I am, as usual, in my house in Cambridge. Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy, is, as usual, in her house in London. Hi, Helen. Hi, David. And it's great that we also have our regular commentator on American affairs, Gary Gerstel, Professor of American History. He's Professor of American History in Cambridge, but he's not in Cambridge, UK. Hi, Gary. Do you want to tell us where you are? I am in what I like to call New Cambridge, since it's considerably younger than the old Cambridge, that being Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, where I have a flat and I'm in my flat 23 hours a day going out for one hour of my constitutional every day for a walk and every day out in Cambridge, Massachusetts, it is like Christmas morning because there's no one there. And I am arguing with my kids who think that I'm too much of a boomer going out too much, even though I'm only going to the grocery store once a week. We are safe, but worried about the circumstances. So they don't want you even taking your daily constitutional? They don't want me taking my daily constitutional and they don't want me entering a grocery store at all. So can I ask you a question that we've asked people in Italy, Germany and elsewhere, and it relates to the substantive issue we're about to get onto. How is this being policed? How overt is the sense that you could be forced back into your flat? Well, the state of Massachusetts, like all states, has something called the police power, which is an extraordinary power in times of emergency to direct people to do almost anything until the emergency ends. So we are being told to shelter in place and to stay home as much as possible. All the public institutions in the state just about are shut. Uh, Most private establishments are shut and we are allowed to go out for a walk or exercise once a day. How well this is being policed. uh, I haven't seen any confrontations in my daily constitutional between police uh, and citizens, but then the citizens of Cambridge, Massachusetts tend to be very well behaved about these matters, even to the point of going around with masks. So I have not seen much enforcement. Uh, There's now been a voluntary curfew imposed at night for people to stay in between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m. And shops, all shops are supposed to close during that time. I imagine there are some struggles going on around that in various parts of the city. So I have not felt the heavy hand of enforcement, but the state of Massachusetts has exercised its power to keep us at home. So this touches on two things that we want to talk about, one of which is, if your experience is atypical, what we're learning about just how different it is to go through this crisis, depending on where you are in the United States and particularly which state you are in. 
But just to pick up on that theme of police powers, because we've talked about this before with you, is one of the key features of American history that it's easy to neglect. There is, I think, a feeling outside the United States, maybe inside the United States, that when a national crisis hits, that is a challenge for the federal government, for the national government to respond to. But the model for that is war, or perhaps a nationwide economic crisis when the kinds of actions that have to be undertaken in 2008, in the 1930s, require action at the national level where possible, and Congress has to also pick up its responsibilities. But this is not, it will be a financial and economic crisis, it already is, but that's not the focus at the moment. It's currently a health pandemic crisis. And the key powers that are having to be exercised are control of people. And as you have pointed out many times, that power resides with the states. So in this crisis, how much is being revealed about where the really important powers lie? Because we are seeing governors and other state-level officials, executives, exercising a prominent public role. But is that because these are the crucial actors here? Well, the answer, as always, is a bit complex. I, I think the best way to answer it is through a brief historical odyssey about the history of police powers and how we got from yesteryear to today. Originally, the power to handle epidemics, disease, was lodged clearly with the states. The states in the early 19th century, at the beginning of the American Republic, were lodged with this extraordinary police power, understood as a duty to take care of the welfare of the people and make them safe. And when disease struck, states were supposed to swing into action very quickly and very decisively. If we were all in a house for talking politics and the state of Massachusetts decided, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts decided that we were all diseased and they couldn't get the disease out of the house, they would have the right to blow it up, eliminate it without any compensation to us. So much for the sacred right of private property in America. The disease and epidemic uh, issue is the paradigmatic case of deploying police powers. And this was the model followed over the first hundred years of the American Republic. But with so many states of varying talents uh, and ability and competence, and with the spread of epidemics across state lines, as happened with the flu epidemic of 1918, 1919, pressure began to grow to centralize power in the federal government. And this power only intensified because of the experience of the first half of the 20th century, two world wars, one Great Depression, and then an unending Cold War. The feeling arose that despite giving so much power to the states, it ought to be centralized in the central government. And over the course of the second half of the 20th century, the U.S. government acquires enormous power, including power to deal with epidemics. Uh, the most important law being the uh, National Public Health Service Law of 1944, which actually vested in the federal government the right to impose a national quarantine. So if Trump wanted to sequester New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, ring them with a quarantine, he would have the power to do it, even though Andrew Cuomo said that would be the end of the republic as he knew it. So the federal government acquired enormous power. But in the last 30 years, the Republicans have been attacking that power as illegitimate, and they have been trying to strip power away from the federal government. They've been hollowing out a lot of government agencies, 
so the states have the expectation now that the federal government will step in to bail them out. But because of 30 years of opposition and 30 years of weakening the federal government, this central state is no longer what it once was. The Center for Disease Control was thought to be one of the greatest institutions of the federal government, tracking disease, developing vaccines, getting out tests, providing supplemental doctors in areas of distress. We have to confront the fact that the CDC has probably experienced the greatest failure in its history. No one right now will regard this as a spectacular government institution that has failed to do what it has needed to do. So the governors have gotten accustomed to turning to the federal government, but the federal government is a shell of what it once was. Uh, There is no marshal to really ride into town, even though Trump has the powers to do it if he wishes to deploy them. And so what's happened is that there's been a kind of frontier federalism where governors are thrown back on their own resources. They're competing against each other. They're competing against other countries in the world for supplies that are very short and which they desperately need. And the result has been chaos and efficiency Uh, the inability of governors to get what they need. Some, of course, have performed better than others, the governor of Washington State, the governor of New York. But there's been a lot of distress, a lot of inefficiency, and a lot of failure. Uh, This describes the chaotic moment that we're in right now. So before I bring Helen in, just on that point about the power that Trump would have, were he to act as the quarantiner-in-chief, would it be as commander-in-chief, and would his instrument be the armed forces? Uh, He would have to ally with the armed forces at some point, but the authority to do this is not in defense. The Public Health Act of 1944 gives him the right, if he decides it's necessary, to impose a national quarantine. A national quarantine has never been imposed. This power has never been utilized, uh, but it's there on the statutory books. He raised it a week ago when he talked about putting a cordon sanitaire around the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And then there was an uproar of protest about it, both from the governors of the states in question and from Republican ideologues saying this would be an illegitimate seizure of power. So he backed off. So he would, to enforce that, he would need to bring in either nationalize the National Guardsmen or bring in Uh, U.S. Army troops. So yes, he would have to ally with that, but he would not have to go to a formal war footing in order to do this because he is authorized by other legislation to do it if he so desires. Helen? Looking at it from over here, what seems interesting is the way in which you've got multiple different things going on where the American Federal Republic is concerned. So on the one hand, you've got these questions, as Gary's been saying, about authority. The president would have the authority to do the things that Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, described as that if they were put in place would lead to the end of the republic. At the same time, you then got the question about capability. Who has got the practical capability? Where does the practical capability to deal with this crisis lie? And at least from over here, it seems what's been going on is a lot of shouting at each other. So Trump actually wanting to blame the states and the governors for saying that they're being incompetent and being ungrateful and that the, the governors wanting to say, look, we're not getting any support from the, the federal government. And then it seemed to me as well, you've got a kind of not quite political dimension to the, the federal republic aspect of this, but the fact that the states are not being evenly affected by the crisis, at least thus far. 
So it can look like what's necessary in one state might not be necessary in another state. But that kind of gets away from the idea of the fact that you need some kind of national solidarity to get through a crisis, an existential crisis of this kind. And Gary, if I could add one more thing to that, because it's also seen from here, notable the extent to which some of this does map onto the polarisation of American politics. So as you say, states are performing very differently. Governors are performing very differently. Part of this is a question of aptitude and competence. Part of it is simply a question of timing. Some of them have been able to learn from others. Some of them have had to respond to a much greater scale of potential disaster. But there has also been a difference in the response between Democrats and Republicans, Democratic governors and Republicans, and the states that have resisted telling people to stay at home I believe, have all been Republican states. Yes, that's true. This is unfolding in a very polarized political environment. The polarization has been deepened by the different media camps from which the different constituencies in America get their news. Fox News speaking to the Republicans, MSNBC, New York Times speaking to the Democrats. So people are getting their news from very different sources. And those states that have been most resistant to imposing shelter in place and quarantines in their own jurisdictions have entirely been Republican states. There has been a variation in terms of the incidence of this virus, as you might expect in a country as big and as diverse as the United States. But there's also been a remarkable complacency to resist what we now know about the development of this disease, and that is it develops silently for two or three or four weeks before its effects are felt. So the lack of activity on the part of Southern Governor has has been very alarming in that way, and I think uh, we're going to see a much more extended crisis as a result of that. Uh, Helen is absolutely right about raising the question about what is the practical capability of the United States to deal with a crisis of this magnitude. Clearly, the states cannot handle this on their own, even the states that are doing the best job. Clearly, there's a need for the central government to come in, organize, coordinate, be decisive. And Trump is uh, utterly wishy-washy on this, uh, saying different things on different days. He's a man without serious political conviction uh, in terms of the proper way of organizing society. His guiding light is always uh, what will get me reelected in November. That's the basis on which he's making his decisions. And here, the Michael Lewis book, The Fifth Risk, that uh, you have done on, on, on the podcast is very relevant. The systematic, uh, serious hollowing out of the institutions of the central state it did not begin with Trump. It's been going on for a long time. So the central state is just simply does not have the capacity, the funds, the resources, the talent that it had either uh, under Obama or that it had 20 years ago. And we are confronting this shortfall on a daily basis. So simply calling on the central state to do its work is not sufficient because the state may not be able to do its work. And one of the outcomes of this is it will confirm conservatives and Republicans in their conviction that the central state really can't handle a job of this magnitude. And it ought to be, to use the words of one Republican ideologue, it ought to be shrunk to the size where we can drown it in a bathtub because 
it has no useful purpose. On those divisions, so this disease, this pandemic in tragic ways highlights various social divisions. It's attacking urban areas, concentrations of population. New Jersey is suffering enormously at the moment. If you live in a sparsely populated state, almost by definition, this isn't going to spread in the same way. And those states, almost by definition, in American politics at the moment, are Republican. But it's also coastal. If you look at the maps, it's attacking the country from the outside in. And so states like Florida, Louisiana, Republican states are seeing this disease spread quite rapidly. And there, the federal government is not stepping up, but nor is state-level government. The governors, particularly in Florida, it looks like, are failing. Is it really going to be possible for Republicans to make that distinction and blame it on the failure of federal government when we see how different the experience of this pandemic is in different states. I mean, there will be just basic, even for people who don't like politics based on numbers, differential death rates, differential outcomes from the next three, four, five, six months, which will look really bad, not just for the federal government. Yes, uh, you might make the argument that Trump's best path toward getting reelected is to really take charge of this crisis, make decisive decisions, deploy the enormous powers at his disposal, put himself on the line and demonstrate that he can really do an excellent job. And if he were to pull that off, he would get reelected. Uh, in the absence of that, it's hard to know what's going to happen. We, we just don't know the final tallies in terms of death and who's going to be struck the hardest and how this is going to be interpreted. A lot of it depends, too, on, on how long the economy remains addled and, and shut down. Are we at the beginning of another Great Depression on the magnitude of the 1930s? We may have 30% unemployment rates by the end of this month, which would exceed anything achieved in the Great Depression. And if relief isn't doled out to small businesses quickly enough, a lot of them may fail. And if they fail and shut their doors, the startup time is very long. You know, it's possible we're looking at a two or three or four or five year crisis. If we enter that kind of scenario, then I think the political consequences will be very severe and they could be quite radical. But what direction it will go in, I think right now it's impossible to say. Steve Bannon is back, uh, Trump's original advisor, thinking now is the moment to affect his nationalist alliance, which will bring hardcore Trump supporters, white working class people, together with hardcore Bernie Sanders, white working class people around a program of domestic manufacturing, no immigration, hostility to all outsiders, massive infrastructural programs, massive jobs programs, take care of our own, a kind of ethno-nationalist uh, socialism, we might call it. And we can also imagine that this is the Republicans' last stand and that they will be discredited and they, they've already given up on their politics of a balanced budget and a free market. The Republican Senate voted for the largest relief bailout package, $2 trillion in all of American history. More of that is to come. So if this pandemic crisis becomes an economic crisis of long duration, then America in 2025 is going to look very different than it does right now. But it's hard to know whether that will have a left or right coloration. 
I think that there's uh, a couple of things that pull in the direction of there being some more actual cooperation and consensus than we've seen in recent years, and then probably something that pulls in the opposite direction. In terms of the economic policy response, the bailout and fiscal stimulus that's been through the Congress and that Trump has signed into law, and they're now discussing a further bill as well. The fact that Trump is in the presidency and the Republicans control the Senate and the Democrats control the House means that there has to be bipartisan cooperation in order for there to be a a government, a federal government economic policy response. Obviously, what the Federal Reserve does is another matter. I think in terms of there being a backlash against the China relationship and in favour of moves towards more domestic manufacturing, I can see that as being something that actually there is reasonable bipartisan consensus about. They're actually probably the one area before this started where Trump had actually dragged the basic American political spectrum, if you like, towards his position was on the question of the China relationship. The harder thing in terms of polarisation, leaving aside for a moment the disastrous possibility of the kind of economic outcomes that Gary's just been talking about, is that as choices have to be made about the relationship between the economic risks and the health, the life and death um, risks, that's not going to look the same, I think, wherever in America that you're sitting. And that, I suspect, will become a point of polarisation, not least because, as David said, there is some existing political geography to, for the moment anyway, the virus's geography. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Something that we've heard from a, more than one person on this podcast is the thought that in a situation like this, it is can be an advantage to have a decentralized system because it does allow a range of different responses. One or two people have made this point about Germany. Germany still, for now, looks like a bit of an outlier in Europe. Not entirely. There are other countries. Austria is another. Denmark is another. But the German system is a federal system. There was a diversity of responses, but they're also empowered forms of local government, able to act quickly and decisively to do different things. But doing different things is sometimes an advantage, particularly in relation to some of the basic health aspects of this, the ability to test, the ability to track and so on, not just the police powers. But the United States does increasingly look like the outlier the other way. I mean, currently, the biggest disaster anywhere in the world affected by this pandemic is happening in America. And the federal system, the decentralization seems to be a disadvantage. Is it because states aren't learning from each other? Is it because the German system is decentralized within quite a unified structure, including quite a unified healthcare structure? Is it a question of competence? Why isn't it helping? I think history matters here. I don't know enough about the German case to speak about it, but I would imagine that their federalism is fairly stable under a unified system where people know their responsibilities very clearly. 
this crisis has, has come at a moment where the federal system is not in a period of stability. And that's the crucial background. And that explains a lot about why the federal system is behaving so poorly now. Uh, certainly, the federal system has the capacity to experiment and try things out on a small scale. Uh, one of the great jurists in American life, Louis Brandeis, in 1932, spoke about the states as laboratories of democracy, and he imagined all kinds of social welfare policies being tried on the state level before they went national. And, and that makes a lot of sense uh, in, in a lot of ways. But he was writing at a moment when the states were still very strong, very robust, very independent. And the critical story of the second half of the 20th century is the weakening of the powers of the states and making them subservient to the federal government, with the federal government using all kinds of powers at its disposal to do so. This was a political imperative for reasons we haven't spoken about today, but which are critical. And that has to do with civil rights and racial equality, because the states in America bear the legacy of Jim Crow, the American system of, of apartheid as being the chief implementers of severe systems of segregation. Most slave law was state law. For a long time in America, if you uttered states' rights and states' power, you were considered a segregationist, not believing in the, that blacks would have the same rights as whites. And in order to eliminate that kind of state power in the second half of the 20th century during the Civil Rights Revolution, the federal government undertook to weaken the states and bring them under federal law under the Bill of Rights, under the 14th Amendment, the critical 14th Amendment in ways they had not been brought under before. And so the states went through a period of profound weakening and growing dependence on the federal government for central direction and coordination. The Republicans have been trying to reverse that process for the last 30 years. And I think what we are seeing now is their success in doing so, not so much strengthening the states, but in terms of their ability to weaken the central state so that it can no longer provide the central coordinating power that it had. I think the clearest demonstration of this is the uh, CDC, the Center for Disease Control, its utter inability to orchestrate any kind of significant testing program for the United States. This is what it was set up to do. This is what it has done spectacularly in the past. It is unable to do that now. And so states are on their own. They haven't thought clearly enough about how they recover power in this new era of federalism. In other words, the epidemic has come at the worst possible time in terms of a new phase of state-central government relations. The states need to be stronger and independent. The central government is weaker. If this epidemic came in 10 years, I think states would have much more capacity to deal with this than they do now. If it had come 10 years earlier, the central government would have been a lot stronger. So the timing is the worst. And this has had a major influence on your correct perceptions that the federal system in America is simply not working. It doesn't mean it can't work better in the future, but for now, it's certainly not working in, in the way that it needs to. I mean, I agree with a reasonable amount of that, but I think there are a few caveats to put in because you know, Britain has a, a centralised state and a centralised health service, though there's you know, NHS Scotland and NHS Wales, but Britain has done not very well at testing either. And quite a lot of the comparisons that have been made here with Germany, you know, pointing out how much better that Germany has done in this respect, 
have also pointed to the nature of the labs that Germany have in the private sector that are set up to deal with this kind of testing, something that's absent in this country. So you can still have centralization and still make a mess of testing. I think also in the United States, it just can't be a coincidence that you're trying to deal with a crisis at the centre of which is health and that the United States has had health as a central political issue for about the last decade or so and has not been able to resolve all those deep political conflicts about how to organise a healthcare system that exist in the United States. So even if you had a better balance between the federal government and the and the state governments, if you have a, a dysfunctional health system, you are going to run into these kind of problems that the US seems to be having. And as you were both speaking, I was thinking about something that's absent here in this process of deepening polarisation and mutual weakening of institutions, some of it in the name of this polarised politics, the polarisation around healthcare. We are used to, and in these discussions that we have, we often have come back to the politics of the Supreme Court. I mean, the Supreme Court has become the site of a lot of this political division and the place where it gets resolved, but also gets exacerbated. This is not the kind of crisis where there is a role for the Supreme Court. Not yet. I'm sure there will be. I mean, I'm sure as we go forward months and years, a lot of what's happened here is going to wind up at the Supreme Court one way or the other. But it also highlights the dangers to me of a politics that's become so reliant on the judicial branch to resolve its political differences, because this isn't a this isn't a crisis for judges. Well, it will be a crisis for judges. It will be, but uh, it isn't now. Judges are not the people you want to sort this mess out because we'll be dead. it, It isn't now, but there will be instances of states or the federal government seizing power that is going to be challenged in the courts. Andrew Cuomo said, wherever the ventilators are in New York State, I'm going to grab them and I'm going to deploy them where they are needed. And conservative representative from upstate New York said, you're not taking any of my ventilators. Actually, Cuomo has the right to do that. But that's an indication of the kind of case that will go to the Supreme Court and the federal government may be forced into taking an action that it has so far been reluctant to do. If the national quarantine law has never been imposed, there's no constitutional interpretation of this that judges can refer to. If something that like that were to be imposed, or if Biden were to be elected in November and he imposed a national quarantine, if this was still going on, you could be sure that this would end up in the courts. So as much as you would like to keep this out of the courts, David, it's going to end up in the courts. I think of in the Korean War, Harry Truman took over Youngstown Steel because there was going to be a strike there, interrupt critical war production. He seized it and then immediately went to the courts and the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, you are not allowed to do that. Return it to private owners. So I think the courts will be brought into this, but your concern about the polarized nature of the courts, which is certainly true, and they've become more polarized under Trump, means that these decisions are going to be inflected by politics, as we've seen yesterday in a Supreme Court decision about whether Wisconsin would be allowed to continue with its primary election today, which I'm sure we'll discuss before we're finished today. Uh, just in response to Helen briefly, I agree with you about the healthcare issue. And of course, the healthcare issue is bound up with questions of federalism, unresolved questions of federalism that Obamacare thought it could finesse, but could not. And so the healthcare solution that Obamacare offered 
actually, one might say, has intensified the instability of the federal system rather than resolving it and further contributes to our current crisis. And dimensions of this crisis, we haven't heard any reporting about yet. I have no doubt that there are a lot of poor people living in crowded areas, working jobs that expose them to the virus who are suffering and dying. A lot of undocumented workers who are scared about going to hospitals to be taken care of. In other words, there's probably a lot of death going on that is not being reported as coronavirus death. And I would imagine that these deaths are concentrated among the poor of America. And when we get the full scale of that reporting, the scale of the calamity is going to appear even greater than it does now. Just on the court question, I'm asking this out of ignorance. So on an issue like who gets the ventilators, which is a question that has to be resolved in a time frame of days or weeks, you can't wait a few months to find out who should get the ventilators, because by that point, someone will have got them and someone won't. Is there a likelihood that the court would be asked to intervene on the timescale of the disease? Or are we talking about longer term questions, including, I'm sure there will be lots of legal contestation around how various bits of the economy come out of lockdown, whether various businesses can or can't be restricted in practicing when they want to start getting back into business. But at the phase we're in now, the crisis phase, could Cuomo versus whoever get to the court in a matter of days? Yes. We've seen that yesterday, again, in relationship to Wisconsin, where the state Supreme Court ruled against changing the election and the Supreme Court rendered its decision on the same day. Also, if we think back to the Bush-Gore election, how quickly the Supreme Court acted in that case, they also don't have to deliver a decision. They can issue a stay, meaning current practices are in place until the court can get around to delivering a decision. So if they want to, they are empowered to act very quickly and decisively in these circumstances of emergency, or to develop an interim solution that gives them some more time to ponder the situation if they think that is what's required. So just say on the hypothetical, say Trump had invoked his power to quarantine the state of New York, and the governor of that state had challenged him in the courts, would it have almost straight away been down to the Supreme Court to decide who wins? Uh, That would have gone to a federal court first, uh, which is a branch of the central state, and then quickly appealed to the Supreme Court. I would think that that would go through the court system in some way in a matter of days. It It would have to. It could not wait. So these things could be coming quite soon. Yes, yes. So my original premise was completely wrong, that many of the most important questions will have to be decided in a matter of days by those nine justices. Yes, your dreaded outcome of this is a lot more imminent than you had been imagining. Oh, great. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, Should we do Biden? Helen, say something about Joe Biden. (laughs) (laughs) On the one hand, the end of this crisis, looking like he'd wrapped the nomination up. But I think you'd be hard pushed to say that he's been having a, a good crisis so far. And in part, anybody in his position would find it difficult because for all you know, Trump's incoherencies and the extremely muddled things that he says, he has, to use that phrase, it used to be used, the bully pulpit of the presidency, and he's doing these press conferences, and he can look, however disingenuously, like he's a man of action, and Joe Biden's stuck in the basement of his house, you know, making broadcasts that don't quite work technically, and lead him into a number, shall we say, at least of verbal cul-de-sacs. 
Now, at the same time, this Wisconsin primary is is going ahead. Other states have delayed their primaries. Sanders was pushing for the Wisconsin one, as I understand it, to be delayed. Biden was the one who said it should be going ahead. We've never not had elections. When we've been at war before, why are we changing now? I think the problem with that for Biden is it just looks like it's convenient for him because he's trying to get the nomination formally sewn up as quickly as possible. And what we are seeing through the crisis is that there are a number of ways in which Joe Biden is a very weak candidate for the presidency. Now, now that doesn't mean that there aren't very good reasons why he is also the most plausible candidate that the Democrats had, not least because he was the one who could put some kind of breadth of political coalition within the Democratic Party together. But his candidacy now really you know, stands on Trump's failings and they are, you know, like many, but we've also seen not just in the United States, but elsewhere that thus far, at least incumbent governments have been doing relatively well in relation to the crisis. Many people, not all, at times of national crisis, want to rally around the government that is in place. Now, if we enter in before November into essentially economic depression territory, and it proves very difficult to get people back to work again quickly once the restrictions on economic life are um, lifted. I think all bets will be off in terms of the election. But for all Trump's incompetence and all the things that it exposes about him, I don't think it is yet led to anything like an inevitable presidency for Joe Biden. Gary, when we spoke the morning after Super Tuesday, where Biden had cemented more or less, his remarkable comeback. And you pointed out it had been orchestrated very fast, as fast as the Supreme Court. In a matter of days, Obama and others, but I think Obama particularly played a role, got people to understand that their only option, if it wasn't going to be Bernie, was Biden. But that seems like a long time ago. I mean, that that episode that we recorded comes from another world, another age. If the party were to decide now, a month on from Super Tuesday, would they make the same choice? Uh, probably because their only other option was Bernie Sanders. And the point of rallying around Biden was to make sure Sanders didn't get the nomination. Uh, that's why it happened so quickly. And also the central orchestration from on high. And and yes, oh my goodness, the Super Tuesday discussion we had seems like it was 10 years ago. I think it was only four weeks ago. I agree with Helen about Trump's effectiveness in terms of using the bully pulpit, consuming two hours of precious airtime every day. He never says really very much, but he has grabbed the media spotlight once again. He has a certain kind of brilliance for doing that. But it's it's so hard to know what's going to happen. Will the conventions happen? I'm not sure they will. Will Trump and Biden both survive without getting the coronavirus? They're both in their 70s. We don't know the answer to that. It may be that there is a group of Democrats talking right now saying, uh, we don't think Biden is the right person for this. We don't think he can pull it off. Then the question becomes, who would it be? There's some talk of Andrew Cuomo being the man they select. I don't think they would move in this direction now. I think it would have to be a kind of coup from on high, and Biden would have to agree to plead some kind of incapacity, either physical or mental, for him to bow out of the race. There would be heavy pressure in that circumstance uh, to give it to the 
person with the second most number of delegates, which would be Bernie Sanders. But if there's not a normal convention, the power will go to party regulars, uh, members of the Democratic National Committee, who would do anything they could to prevent Bernie from getting the nomination. So it's, it's a wild situation. I just can't believe the epidemic is happening during an election year. It may be that normal voting cannot take place. Just to give you an example of what's going on in Wisconsin now, they normally would have 180 polling stations in the city of Milwaukee. There are five. Milwaukee is a majority minority city. People have been lining up for blocks in this moment of epidemic, risking their health to vote. We have to see what the results of this are. Part of the decision in Wisconsin to go ahead uh, with the primaries today was the conviction that if it went ahead today, very many fewer Democratic urban voters would go to the polls. The Republicans would have an advantage. The Democratic Party would be hurt. We have to see maybe African-American voters are going to say Biden a second time. So one of the wild cards in this is how is this playing with core Democratic constituencies uh, and to what extent does the anger at Trump continue to mount? Uh, So I accept Helen's comments about Biden's weakness as a candidate, but I've just never imagined that the United States would be going into an election with so many uncertainties about the basic elements of this election, whether they can even happen. Because that does then bring us back to where I was about 20 minutes ago. Even I imagined that one way the Supreme Court might get involved here you mentioned Bush versus Gore. That at least happened after an election. But already the fights about postal voting, diff- different ways of running this thing, make such a huge difference to the likely outcome. We know that. We know that about national elections. We know that about all elections. Um, it really matters how you do it, not just who's standing and what they stand for. And those controversies are going to get incredibly heated before we get to November. So assuming the election does not get postponed, which would be a really extreme step, but it will happen under circumstances where it's presumably not possible to run it entirely as usual. And then you're back into polarised politics again, aren't you? I would just say, though, I think that if we're looking at a situation where it's not possible to hold the American presidential election in early November in normal circumstances. And I mean by that, most people going to vote in person plus some postal um, ballots, then we would be in such an economic disaster beyond, I think, what any of the three of us could imagine that I, I don't think it much of it even makes sense to even try and think what the politics of that could be like, because we would be so deep into an economic crisis. It just doesn't really bear thinking about, I think. I was more thinking of, so not that it's impossible to hold an election, and I I tend to agree, I think it's almost impossible to imagine the circumstances in which that decision would be made. But before then, assuming that this crisis is going to drag out for a few months, um, and it's going to move across the United States, move to different places and have these different impacts, there will be a lot of sparring beforehand about how much discretion individual states are given in how they run these elections, how much discretion is given to the ways in which ballots are conducted and so on. And you can imagine that quite quickly getting bogged down in partisan differences. So if nothing else, the election happens under circumstances in which a lot of uncertainty exists waiting to be resolved about 
how it will take place, not whether it will take place, but how. If it's true that it looks hard to have an election in November, then I agree all bets are off. But I still think in July, with the conventions having been delayed or maybe happening in a virtual form or whatever, and everything is still up in the air, you get into some really big battles about what the shape of the vote in November is. I agree with that. The U.S. has never postponed an election, even during its uh, violent civil war. The election of 1864 went on. I I think it's fair to presume there will be an election. But it's also fair to presume that the voting mechanisms are going to have to be adjusted extensively, even radically. And the only thing more chaotic in America than its healthcare delivery system is its voting system. Because not only is voting devolved to the states, but many states devolve organization of voting to counties so that in any one state, there could be multiple jurisdictions operating independently of each other. And if you think of coordinating all this to massively change the election system to ensure a fair election in November, it's a mammoth undertaking in a system as radically decentralized as the voting system that the United States has. And of course, this issue about who gets to vote and under what circumstances has been one of the lightning rods of American politics for 50 years now, with the Democrats convinced that the numbers of voters have to be maximized and the Republicans convinced that the numbers of voters have to be minimized. And so the epidemic opens up a whole new terrain on which these battles are going to need to be fought. And if the past is any indication about the future, those battles are going to be vicious. And David's least favorite institution of the American government, the Supreme Court, is going to have to be called in to adjudicate these vicious fights in circumstances where it is already deeply polarized. So the the long shadow of Bush v. Gore may hang over the election of November 2020. Ironically, it almost feels like the conversation we had after the Iowa caucus is less remote than the conversation that we had after Super Tuesday, even though it's more remote in time, because the Iowa caucus introduced chaos into what we had thought was going to be a kind of order. And then Super Tuesday reimposed a kind of order back on the chaos. And now everything that you've just described suggests that we're heading back, not to Super Tuesday, but back to the feeling that we had the day after Iowa. I think we're back to chaos as I project the political events that happen in the next few months uh, and knowing how radically decentralized and ungovernable the American electoral system is. It is something uh, that we all ought to be worrying a lot about. And Helen, I'm going to give you the last word because you've raised this theme many times, order versus chaos. Do you think that's going to be the framing of the choice in November? I think that Trump will try to do that. And as I think I've said before, he sort of moved from presenting himself, in a sense, as the candidate of chaos to now presenting himself as the supposed candidate of order. All the things that we've been talking about, including this whole federal-state relationship, have really kind of come together to show, in some sense, as Gary's just said, how incredibly difficult any notion of order is in American politics in terms of where the American Republic has got to. And in some sense, that would be true without this virus. But this virus has just given a 
a really graphic demonstration of it. Yet at the same time, as we've talked about in the context of other countries' politics, it's actually shown the necessity of political order. It's shown the value of the state, the importance at times of crisis of the state's authority and power. And that is what actually is absent in American politics. There is a lot more about the history of police power, pandemics and much else in Gary's book, Liberty and Coercion. That will be in our show notes along with Gary's other writings and some of the podcasts we've recorded in the past that touch on many of these themes. We've got a special extra Easter edition this weekend. Helen Thompson and I are going to be talking about our love for Hilary Mantel's trilogy of books about Thomas Cromwell and what they teach us about the nature of power. And next week in our regular slot, we're going to be talking about British politics. There is an awful lot going on, including, but not just, a new leader for the Labour Party. Please join us for all that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com